Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey y'all, I'm Otis Pickett, the University Historian at Clemson University and a man of faith based here in Clemson, South Carolina. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails, a podcast about faith, religion, and walking a faith-based life. On the show, we're going to be joined by both believers and scholars, leaders in the fields of education, history, and religion. My hope is that you find these conversations inspiring, and maybe you and I will even learn a thing or two along the way. Before I introduce my guest for this week's episode, I'd ask that you subscribe, rate, and even review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you've stumbled upon the show. Please also tell your friends, family, and pastors about it as we'd love to get support and get the word out. Okay, now to my guest for this week. My guests today are Dr. Peter Slade and Deshaun Dyson. Both Deshaun and Peter are old friends of mine from living in Mississippi. Dr. Peter Slade, a native of England, holds a PhD in religion from the University of Virginia and is currently the chair of religious studies at Ashland University in Ohio. Peter's been involved in racial healing for more than 20 years and has a deep understanding of the intersection between evangelicalism and racism. His book, Open Friendship in a Closed Society, Mission Mississippi and a Theology of Friendship, is highly rated and offers keen insight on one group's quest for racial reconciliation in Mississippi. Deshaun Dyson is truly one of my dearest and closest friends. He's a professor of education at Mississippi College. He got his master's degree at Mississippi College, and he's working on his Ph.D. in higher education leadership at Jackson University. Deshaun is also the founder of the Redeemer School, a Christian school in Jackson, Mississippi, committed to racial, ethnic, and economic diversity. Deshaun and I worked very closely together for 10 years in Mississippi, primarily on initiatives related to education and also providing spaces for racial healing to residents across the state. One of the greatest testaments to our friendship is that Deshaun was a pallbearer at my daughter's funeral. I can't say anything more than that he is my closest brother. Both Deshaun Dyson and Peter Slade are examples of Christians who've committed their lives to getting the Christian church to think more honestly about its history of racial segregation with hopes that the church will gain a greater understanding of the power that racial healing can have on both the church itself and the nation. Welcome to Sean Dyson and Peter Slade to Purpose That Prevails. Well, we are on today, Purpose That Prevails. Our episode today features two amazing friends of mine, scholars, practitioners, fellow believers, Dr. Peter Slade and Professor Deshaun Dyson. So I'm just so glad y'all are here today. Thank you so much. And Deshaun is about done with his doctorate, right? Right, D? Getting there. About a year left. (laughs) So it's just really great. Good friends. So great to have y'all on. Thank you for everything. I just kind of want to start with, um, we're, we're starting with, we've had all these amazing scholars and folks on the show, but we're also human. And so what are the things that we like to do that humanize you to our audience, things that are fun that you like to do with your family or things that you just like to do for rest or relaxation? So D, you want to get us started? And that is Deshaun Dyson. I call him D. (laughs) 
All right, Pete. I, I guess my my thing is I, I live I, I teach at Ashton University in Ohio, so I live near where King James spent most of his career. So does that count for anything? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, what I love to do is um, I love to play guitar badly and sing a little better. And uh, my wife, and she's kind, um, joins me, and she's a real deal musician, so she makes me sound better, uh, which is a good metaphor for my life, pretty much. <laughs> uh, I've also got a couple of kids who are in high school, so their hobbies have become my uh, my life. So I've I've been going to football games to hear the band and uh going to cross country meets which i never thought was something i'd ever want to do but when when your kid's running it's pretty exciting well, that's great well it's just so great to have you guys on today thanks for just sharing a little bit about yourselves we like to kind of start off the podcast with what we call testimony time so if you come to church you've been going to church your whole life or you you've probably come to a church where someone said hey share your testimony tell us about what God has been faithful in your life. Tell us your family story. Tell us your story in the family of Christ. And so I'd like to just give you guys some time to just sort of talk about your testimonies, talk about the role that Christian faith has played in your life and your family's life and uh, go ahead and get us started. Hey, Pete, you want to start us there? Okay. Well, for those of you listening on the podcast, as I'd say to my students, you can tell I'm not from around here, right? So <laughs> uh, I started off this earthly journey in, uh, in England I'm an American citizen now. But uh, yeah, I grew up in a kind of church going family. We went to uh, the Church of England church down the road. And then when I was a teenager, very unusual for a Church of England church, you think of them as kind of stayed, they had a they had a mission. And uh, at the end, they had the altar call. And I walked the walked the aisle in that medieval church. And if you ask me what I was doing, then I'd said I was I've said I'm committing my life to, to this and I'm going to be serious about it mm. and see what God has for my life. And so from high school, I had a sense that I was being called to serve the church, to, to, to work for the church. But I, I didn't really think that I was necessarily becoming a preacher or um, getting ordained. And I went on and did university work in St. Andrews, which I did the equivalent of an MDiv. So I was I was just 18, 19 years old, but I was there with 40, 50 year old people studying for the ministry as well. So uh, that was pretty unusual. And I, I guess it's sort of hard looking back, right? Not imposing stuff on it. But I really earnestly prayed that God would have good work for me to do and would would lead me to it. And I had no idea really what that would be. But I guess I've always felt somehow because surprising things keep happening. And I find myself in places where I think, what am I doing here? You're probably thinking this on the podcast right now. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, and, and for a lot of my life, I felt like I'm on some bizarre cosmic training scheme that God is preparing me for things. And I cannot see often what, what that's about. But, but, mm. uh, um, but to cut a long story short, in, when I was 27 years old in 1997, I thought I was having a sabbatical. I'd been working in community work. I was feeling pretty burned out. And I'm a musician, and the center of my universe is probably Memphis. As a, as a white English guy, I love all the music coming out of Memphis. And 
I got myself uh, to Mississippi, to the University of Mississippi to study Southern studies. And I thought I was having a sabbatical. I thought I was going to listen to blues and gospel music. I thought I was going to eat barbecue. And then I'd go back refreshed, ready to go back to the UK. But I arrived and um, Susan Glisson, who I believe you've, you've had on this podcast, I met her within the first week and she put me to work with, she was she just does. starting what, as yeah, she, she was just starting the president's, uh, working with the president's initiative on race. Mm. And she said, uh, why don't you, why don't you go into the high schools and, and, and get students ready to report to the president's initiative on race? So I'm there. I felt like Jonah, right? So I'm, it was really good because I, I went in to work with these high school students and I was really honestly able to say, you're going to have to explain to me what's going on here because I've only just arrived in this country. <laughs> so please tell me what's going on and help me understand. And uh, I, I suddenly realized like Jonah, you know, I thought I'd, I'd managed to run away, get as far away as I could. And I discovered that I was doing possibly the most meaningful Christian community work that I'd I'd done in my life so I don't know if that answered the question but my testimony is that simply I just I just want to be obedient to what God wants me to do wow. and it's been an adventure thanks Pete all right D all right so I was born and raised in Jackson Mississippi I currently live in Jackson Mississippi um, and that's I told my wife we were on vacation for a weekend um the way you vacation when you've got three small kids, I say small, smallish, um, this sort of a quick overnight thing that, you know, at every, at every turn, I'm, I'm waving and speaking to people in traffic. We're talking to everybody in every restaurant. Like, I love the South. I love that about Southern culture, that the familial sense of, of just how people move and operate. Um, so I, I grew up in, in Jackson and the church was always a very significant and weighty part of my life. My father uh, became a minister, pastor during my childhood. And even before that, I can remember attending church very faithfully, attending church events very faithfully. Um, I remember, you know, what's sort of a stereotypical, you know, Southern existence of like revivals and um, country churches and all those things like that. That was life that um in our denomination it was you know you only have so many churches in jackson so you're about to drive somewhere <laughs> and so we grew up um driving to the mississippi delta driving to um you know smaller populated towns where um whether it was him you know sort of learning to be a preacher and preach and all these things or once he had that role but for me you no know, it's sort of went in these cycles of one sort of hitting this middle school age where I started, you know, going to, you know, every youth group in our community in the suburb we moved to, they just had that spill down pack to get you there. And so of all places, you know, Mississippi Delta, I ended up, I played football, um, I tore my ACL, so I was not able to play football. I played, I think, two games my senior season. Um, and just a lot of stuff changed for me real time in terms of special treatment and all these things. Mm. And it changed a lot of stuff. So one of which was, all right, you're not going to college to play football. Um, you're you're going to have to figure something else out. In the immediate, I ended up playing again eventually, but I went um, to the Delta on a choir scholarship. And I show up to the Mississippi Delta and it just rocks me 
the fact that in you know the year 2000 that there are still people who that these dynamics still exist but people who know me they can attest to that it was a radical change and a radical shift in me um pretty quickly um and and then you go to Bellhaven. It, it right? maybe go to Bellhaven. It it it, it changed everything yeah. about how. Like if if this is true, if if the things about me that I've been discerning about my struggles, and if like Christ has atoned for that, and there's a freedom for me to live in Him, and like I'm offered transformation, um, that's very empowering. That's amazing news. I want to share that. Okay, in this brokenness, like it's not okay. <laughs> like I, I, I'm, I've, I've hmm. been given this energy to th- this, this language that was a catalyst for, like, just building a framework for me. Like you know, as you learn this academic, it gave me a framework for, like, no, like we can, we can restore and rebuild. And so, um, to to your yeah. point, um, it had a big part in me even choosing my my next education location. So. I think you both kind of are touching on something which is really central to this podcast, which is you, you, you're seeing that the Lord is working in your life, that you have a purpose. Um, and then you both get into education. What role does your faith as a Christian have in what you do in the classroom, what you do in scholarship? And as you interact, both of you are at Christian institutions as you interact and, and intentionally are in a Christian institution, higher educational space, what role does your faith have in that? Pete? Yeah, uh, you sent me this question and, and it's a really good one. Uh, and, and, and one we should be asking ourselves every day, I guess. The, my core beliefs kind of come clearer to me. And one is that the church is the community of forgiven sinners and reconciled enemies. That we are fundamentally we know that we're forgiven sinners and fundamentally we know that we're sitting next to people in the pews who under other circumstances might be our enemies when we are that then they'll know that we're christians because of the love we have one for another right so so that's one of my core beliefs right forgiven sinners and reconciled enemies and the other thing came out in a nutshell to me the the other day i was chatting with my 16 year old son and he's He's facing some issues in his social group. And I was sort of saying, you know, when you're navigating everything in life, actually, two things I think are really fundamental. One is if you've got a choice of whose side you're on, you're on the side of the victim. And if you're thinking about whether you include or exclude someone, always lean towards including people because welcoming strangers is about what it's about. And so I thought I was being very wise and very dadly to him. And he said, oh, well, that's just that's just the um, parable of the um, prodigal son and the um, good Samaritan. I was like, that is exactly right. <laughs> good job. I was like, Pat Jesus, you really knew how to tell a good story. <laughs> But but I realized those are really kind of deep in my DNA, part of my family story as well, which I won't go into here, but half of my family are, are Jewish refugees from Germany. And so I believe very strongly that I want to see a church which is forgiven sinners and reconciled enemies who side with victims and welcome strangers. And so I'm a, I'm a church historian. And so studying um, the body of Christ through history, you see lots of examples 
of where the church has been exactly the opposite to that. But also you see very inspiring moments when prophetic characters and prophetic communities actually live into that mm. and make a profound difference. And so in, in the classroom, what I want to do is show that, to explore that and not tell students where they should land, but, but explore that with them. So you're, you're in a Christian space in, in Ashland working with Christian students, helping them to see those moments. And for some people that could be seen as, oh, he's being like very hypercritical of the church. And like, I look at it like, man, you're really pointing students to teach them where the church has gone awry in order for them to love Jesus more and love the church more and love our society better. Yeah, right. Well, it's interesting. So Ashland University, it is a it's a church affiliated college and a lot of my students are Christians and it's a space where I'm free to, you know, profess my faith. Um, but I have a lot of students who um, uh, are post-Christian or, you know, they are the, the current generation is so put off by what they've experienced and they actually find it very liberating yeah. to to be, oh, we can look at this and question it and actually find inspiration in this. Mm. So uh, most of what I hear from my students is kind of surprised that they found this stuff inspiring even when they decided to, mm. you know, kiss the church goodbye. Mm. How about you, Dee? I mean, I know just knowing you for so many years, like your Christian faith has driven you in ministry, in K-12 education, in now being a professor at Mississippi College. Talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about your role in what faith has played in, in education. So education is something that for those, I think those of us who've been around and seen a lot of things in places, it is not a given. It is not a universal that everyone gets at every level. And so when you become a part of a group, that's set apart because of your level of education, because of your knowledge, because of your access. What do you do with that? What do I have that I can, I can make, I can be, and, and not so much be that to people, but I can model um, the kind of grace and love that's been shown towards me. So this is a really amazing point because like you're talking about creating equitable spaces in higher education. And it's just really fascinating, especially given the moment where equity on college campuses seems under attack. Like it seems like this is something that either some folks think shouldn't happen or, and very much there are a lot of Christians who are saying it shouldn't happen. And what you're talking about is like one, just like the church, we benefit when there are people from all kind of different ethnicities and walks of life, like in the life of the church, because we have a global church. But also we have to recognize that at a historically white denominational school, that school was not built for African-American people and was not African-American people weren't even in the thought process as the curriculum and as the institution is laid out over its history. And so the intentionality that it takes as an educator of faith to say, how are we welcoming, how are we loving these people that are coming into the community? But that's an expression of our Christian faith. And, and I think you're right. Like sometimes we go, well, we have to protect these institutions at all costs. 
And when other people come into those institutions who aren't like us, we lose our institution. I just don't see that. I don't see that as a reality. I mean, that's not the reality of Christ church, is it? When you say protect, like if you're protecting um, a standard of holiness by which we operate, okay, like mm. that is to me a thing worth seeking to honor Christ. But that does not come with a, you know, an ethnic cultural tag to it. And mm. so right. I think it's a habit of, okay, let's name and define the principle, the thing that we're wanting to protect, because there are things worth protecting. It just makes me think about like what the point Pete was making earlier about Christians being countercultural and what that, what can happen to give people hope for the church that, that Christians really do stand up. All right. We got to switch. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about Mississippi. A lot of people, you know, think about Mississippi as kind of the scapegoat of America. It's kind of this place where it's just a hotbed of racism. It's just a place where, you know, it, there is an infrastructure, things are broken. There's no water. Like there's just all these things about Mississippi that are pejorative in our country. And, um, I'll just say like coming from South Carolina to Mississippi in 2008, I was amazed at what the people of Mississippi are doing. And I was especially amazed at what the people of Mississippi were doing with regard to issues of race of institutional organizations that for 40, 50, 60 years have been working on racial healing and working on racial injustice in Mississippi. And it was just an amazing experience for me to come and sort of learn in this state where uh, this is a, a, a common practice. And, and you come across William Faulkner when you live in Mississippi and Faulkner has has said, if you want to understand the world, you first have to understand a place like Mississippi. And I think living there after about 10 or 15 years, I, be, I was beginning to understand what he meant by that. That really Mississippi, rather than being a scapegoat, is sort of a reflection of our entire society in a, in a variety of ways. Deshaun, your family has been in Mississippi for generations. Uh, you're a Mississippi guy. Mississippi has shaped you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Just the ways in which your family has experienced racial injustice or your experiences living there and what that's been like being a Christian? I can. Things like lynchings and murder, things like, you know, discrimination that's impacted employment, um, things like, you know, job opportunities. You know, my parents were very intentional in an expression of like care and love. Um, they were able to move us out of a really, really tumultuous, violent community. Um, and when I, you know, when I say like, I, I don't talk about it much, but like, I can remember being a little kid and like there being a gunfight, we're on the school bus and just, so it's just crazy stuff that my parents are like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Um, but then moving into a community where, all right, white people is a new phenomenon. Like this is a thing that we've not dealt with or we're not used to. It's scary when you walk around as a kid like we did and you still see like Confederate flag taking from people's houses, um, trying to trick or treat and your parents are trying to navigate. Okay. Like, you, you know, they're sending you out to that. And so for me, even in the year 2019, 
um, 2000, you know, we're still discussing these things. I just got finished reading Bishop Desmond Tutu's book about forgiveness and the idea, like if you think on a global perspective, the way that throughout history and time, people have been hurt and people have hurt others. Um, the continued calling from God's word is reconciliation. And I also believe that that's part of spiritual discipline, that you don't always want to do something when you're doing it, but the Lord equips us in community and through his grace to make steps towards that. So Pete, you're coming to Mississippi, you're from England, you're also kind of seeing, wow, there's this amazing stuff that's happening here. And you're diving into this research on this organization called Mission Mississippi in your book, Open Friendship in a Closed Society. Can you tell us a little bit about some lessons that you learned just kind of doing research or some things that you saw in Mississippi in the 70s and 80s? Well, in the 70s and 80s, I was really looking, started, Mission Mississippi 90s, started 90s. started in the 90s. Yes. Yeah, a bit of context to this. It, first of all, I, I want to reassure my listeners that I didn't come to Mississippi and suddenly discover there was this thing called racism. Right. It, it, it was alive and well in the world that I left in England. Obviously, there's kind of different histories in the places. So back in England, I'd read More Than Equals by Chris Rice and Spencer Perkins. I didn't really know much about Jackson, Mississippi, but it was on the church bookstall and, and it was pretty interesting. So again, this strange thing that I was being prepared ahead of time for something I didn't know. Mm. But for the church, uh, the evangelical church, white evangelical church, it really responded to the video of Rodney King uh, and Rodney King's beating in LA by the LAPD and then the riots that happened when the officers were acquitted and the, there was a whole movement in the in the 1990s where white evangelical christians suddenly said hang on a minute we need to really be doing something this is a real problem and the church has a, a witness um, of reconciliation that we need to be speaking to this and so the racial reconciliation movement some of the listeners will remember promise keepers was a real central part of, of promise keepers uh, that that there was no place for racial division in the body of Christ. And Mission Mississippi really sprang out of that moment. And it was a group of ministers in Jackson, black and white ministers, and the business association decided that, that they, they needed to have like a Billy Graham style rally in Jackson. So Mission Mississippi, they, they were having a, a mission to the, to the city and it needed to be a, uh, an interracial witness to the world. And so studying that was was inspirational. And, and, and one of the neat things about that movement when they started was the people who started it made a decades long commitment. They said, if we're going to start this, this is going to be for the long run. Um, we know we don't fix things overnight in Jackson. So so that was very inspiring. But like a lot of well, so, th so then what happened was um, they, they held big stadium rallies for the first four years. But they wanted to go deeper and they, they realized that this really needed to be um, an ongoing kind of reconciliation movement. And they stepped away from the stadium rallies and then really focused on um, building connections between churches, building connections between black and white Christians in Jackson, in particular, having um, prayer meetings twice a week. And then the people started talking about um, issues of justice. And when you hang out with folks, you hear what's really going on. 
for, for white churches, it's it's like a um, trip switch has been built in. And as church historians, we know there's been a, there's been a hundred years of building in that trip switch um, mm-hmm. to to if if stuff starts moving a little close to um, uh, addressing questions of power, um, addressing questions of inequity, um, then the trip switch goes and you're accused of, well, now we're not talking about the full gospel or the real gospel. Mm. And so you, you could see that playing out um, in Mission Mississippi, but also that these, these are these are really impressive, um, committed Christian folk who, who's, who are wrestling with that too. And um, so commitment of um, folks like Dolphus Weary, who who sees Mission Mississippi as the first step. They call it, he calls it, well, he called it. I've, I've got a, my caveat is this was my research 20 years ago and, and things have moved on. But what I found 20 years ago was he, Dolphus Weary was talking about reconciliation 101, that this was getting people to the table, getting people talking, getting people hearing other people's stories, um, white Christians hearing black Christians, Christians experience um, is reconciliation 101. It's the first step. So one thing that's really interesting that I want to raise with our listeners is this question about the gospel. And this has been my experience as well, is that when you're talking about Jesus in an evangelistic perspective, that you need to know Jesus and come to Jesus and to to participate in the sacraments and to participate in reading scripture and participate in prayer and participate in worship that that is the gospel, right? But something has happened in the last 20 to 30 years to say that when we talk about justice, which by the way, is woven throughout just about every book of the Old Testament and several chapters of the New Testament, that somehow this is not the gospel or that this is not part of the gospel. Because justice means we're dealing with inequity and we're dealing with abuses in the past or we're dealing with ongoing inequity or dealing with ongoing abuse. And there's this resistance that folks have to like, whoa, let's not talk about that. So you make that not the gospel. You make it something that was constructed by scholars or something that was constructed by our society that somehow we're trying to bring into the gospel. But we know throughout centuries of Christian history, as well as from God's word itself, that justice is a huge part of God's character. So what do you think it is? And I I can toss this to you, Pete, or Dee as well. What do you think it is that causes us as Christians, white evangelicals, to pull away from discussions of justice, especially as it relates to race, as not a gospel issue? I could answer it as a church historian, and I think it goes all the way back to the kind of fight between the kind of the social gospel and the fundamentalists at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. And it sort of, the, the gospel got split in half and shared out between these two sides, and both sides said, oh, you, you know, you're, you're missing the point, and it became very polarized. And so for evangelicals, like an old, they may have heard people saying, oh, that's the social gospel. That's not the real gospel. And it goes all the way back to that. But I think I'm, I'm going to answer that question a different way. Paul talks about the principalities and powers, right, that are, that are sort of messing with the world, right? Yeah. And, and 
in many ways the church is standing d you talked about you know we're in the world but not of it right we, we should be against the principalities and powers and the principalities and powers are not individuals they are demonic systems these are the these are the the powers of sin and death that that are, are built into the structures you know that jesus ran into the principalities and powers with the roman empire right so so we have language to understand systems but I, when i was when i was in sunday school you know as a kid i was told the biggest trick that the devil the devil can play is to make people think he doesn't exist right mm. And right now, the biggest trick the devil can play is to make Christians believe that the principalities and powers are not powerful in setting up systems and structures that hold people in bondage, right? We're all held in some way or another by these principalities and powers. Whether you're, in, whether you're one of the bullies or one of the people being bullied, you can feel the power of those systems and structures. So, um, D, like you were saying with the schools, right? Those are systems, and we need to work to challenge the parts of those systems that stifle human flourishing, that try and crush and distort the image of God that's in people, right? So Christians should be the very people who are able to call out these things that are not the kingdom of God, but are the kingdoms you know, of the world, of these principalities and powers. And I think there's been a real tragic trick that's been pulled on us, to, which means that so many Christians will argue angrily that you mustn't but that's you know there's no such thing as systemic injustice or there's no right. such thing as systemic racism it's like come on you know yeah. there is and by the way christians should be able to spot it better than anyone else right doesn't mean there isn't individual sin doesn't mean you don't call people to repent doesn't mean you you know it's not either or right so i want to be careful of our time deshaun i want to i want to jump back to you Right now, you're working on a variety of issues, thinking about Mississippi, thinking about education in Mississippi, thinking about equity in higher education, thinking about what Christian leadership looks like. Um, and, and you're also working with James Meredith, who is, for our audience who doesn't know, in, integrates the University of Mississippi in 1962 and then leads the March Against Fear. I believe that's in 65. Um, and, and the James Meredith Institute. So will you tell us a little bit about your work with James Meredith, um, his faith and how it shapes him and kind of the work of this institute? You know, with James Meredith, one of the things I'll say before I was really captivated by um, his, his faithful vision and legacy that I noticed was because of my work in educational spaces, I would often see him, um, you know, one week I would hear about, you know, I'm going to be at Harvard this week. Um, not me. <laughs> James is going to be at Harvard this week talking at a commencement for, you know, this, this school at the um, university. Well, then this next week he's going to be in Paris, you know, talking to some group that wants him there. Well, then I see him at like a 30-person group of um, independent school leaders in Mississippi, of which at that time, I was the only African-American. Um, well, then a few months later, my dad, who was a pastor at a church in the Delta, says, hey, um, can you get James Meredith to come and talk to my congregation? 
of, you know, of 20 folks in the Mississippi Delta at this small church. And a month later, I'm sitting in a, you know, a church in Carrollton, Mississippi, that's, you know, 2,100 square feet, you know, just this, this small building. And when I tell you, you don't get any change in passion, any change in energy, any change in messaging from him in each of those settings. Um, and so that kind of faithfulness, like it just, as I watched as a young man mm. wanting to do good work um, and to, you know, to, to not grow faint and to, uh, you know, to keep the course, you know, you, you want to know what's going on there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how, how do you keep showing up? How do you keep showing up in the way that you're showing up? Mm. Do you want to share an email address with our audience if they wanted to give something to you and James Meredith Institute? To- My email is ddyson at mc.edu. D D Y S O N at mc.edu. And that was, again, my, my thing was after sitting with him, I realized everyone loves him. Everyone says we're going to support him, but he was sitting in the same position today that he was three years ago. And I think that's on us as a community. We need mm-hmm. to help him. So yeah. that's where we're stepping in. Awesome. So Pete, um, you've been working on a lot of different things, uh, kind of in Ashland, um, but also with EVA and Charles Marsh and the project on live theology and now sort of working with Christian faculty at Christian institutions across the country. Tell us a little bit about your work and how faith is shaping your work currently. Sure. So uh, I've been part of this uh, group called the project on lived L I V E D not livid (laughs) lived theology at UVA, um, and I realized for 23 years, that's quite a long time in my lifespan. Um, And uh, that's, yeah, like you said, with Charles Marsh, and we're really interested in the way uh, getting theologians and academics, but also activists to learn lessons from the way communities of faith kind of live out and shape the world around them. And then as part of that, in the last two two or three years, I've put together a project called um, Lift Every Voice and Teach where we're connecting folks who teach in Christian colleges who um, whose their teaching touches on questions of race and reconciliation and healing in their different disciplines. Um, so this was a, this was a work group. Um, we're going to be publishing some of our stuff, but um, most recently, in fact, last weekend, uh, we got a group of um, 25 of us together uh, in Minneapolis. And uh, a really interesting place to meet and and mm. and and shared and brainstormed um, in our conversation. And as you've already mentioned, this is a really, really interesting time uh, to be teaching um, this stuff. Where you know there's legislation before state houses saying what you can and cannot teach. Um, and so, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, a very interesting time to be getting these folks together. And again, I, I, it's it's like this. It's fantastic being in a room with people who, you know, I'm like, wow, you're all smarter than me. I want to learn from you. Um, Folks from uh, Christian institutions uh, right across America. One thing that was very funny was um, whenever we went anywhere, people was like, because we're all wearing our conference tags. And and people would say, where are you all from? And then everyone started laughing because they were trying to figure out this is the most absurdly diverse group of racially diverse people we've ever seen. And then we're all from all over the country. Well, he's from California. She's from Texas, you know. He's from Ohio. 
and uh, yeah, the poor Uber drivers didn't know didn't know what was going on. That's great. So you're talking about the kingdom of God, and you're talking about our citizenship in heaven, and we are not living as Christians in America as if those things are real. Like we are not living as if those things are real or that they're our first priority in how we view the world. And there's something in, I don't know if it's North American society or Western hemispheric society that is causing us to focus on something else as the first way in which we relate to people. And then the kingdom of God comes second after we have like a cup of coffee and quiet time. And so what y'all are saying is like, man, if we really believe in these things and those are, I, our, our whole purpose is to live for this kingdom, then that ought to be the lens through which we view the issues of race and injustice. Yes. Amen. When you're held fast by these systems and to, to, to actually do something about it is costly hmm. or at least at the minimum, it's uncomfortable. Hmm. What will my neighbors say? What will my family say at the dining room table? If I bring this up in conversation, like it, it's uncomfortable. So there are all these things like holding us in place. But Jesus says, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Hmm. Um, and a, a guy I was um, studying, Pete Seeger, who was not a Christian, but who preached amazing biblical sermons, said, this is a cheerful, he called it a cheerful struggle. And actually, when you're around people who are just being honest, saying this is hard stuff, but let's get together in community, in coin in the air, and let's be honest about this. Those are very joyful places. There is a lot of laughter. There's singing, right? It's a, in Pete Seeger's words, this is a cheerful struggle because Christ has overcome the world. Mm. You know, you, there, there's a new family in that. There's there's hope. So, you know, I confess I fail. I take the easy route a lot of the time. Go in a room. I want to talk to people who, you know, are like me and have my interests and uh, I don't step out all the time. So I think that's another thing is is being honest. We're not pretending we're like super saints, dun, 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 you know, got all the answers. Um, no. Not at all. I mean, I think, and, and you, the the question you had was, you know, for for Christians moving forward. Um, I think it's. I mean, I'm going to get this. Is, this is pretty heavy, right? So I said that the racial reconciliation movement of the '90s started with the beating of a black body. Right. And the shock of the world seeing it kind of revealed what was going on. And 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 it was apocalyptic, apocalyptic in the sense of unveiling, right? In the true sense, apocalypsis. And 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 so suddenly people were able to see in the church, even if it was a glimpse, that there's something really wrong here and we need to we need to step up. We had another terrible moment, obviously, in 2020 with George Floyd and and the that it led to the largest global civil rights movement uh, for, for racial justice that we've ever seen. And then obviously we're in a period where things are resettling um, and there's a, a reaction to that. And, and tragically, I think in many ways, the um, Christian, the white Christian church, um, evangelical church in America, instead of stepping up is actually listening to the fearful voices from outside and, and, and allowing those fearful voices from outside saying, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. I'm sorry, I, 
that's the moment we're in right now. And that's why we need to be a witness. And it's a and cheerful what, struggle, but what, it's a struggle. And what would happen if we all shut down? What would happen if we all decided to just be quiet and stop? God would raise other people up. Mm. That's true. But but that's not our calling, right? Right. We're, we're called to be faithful. I think the power of the Holy Spirit, and I do think celebrity culture is a part of this dynamic culture of performance. And no one's, I just, I don't think it's built for thriving for anyone. Mm. And so I think a, a lens or a, a litmus of faithfulness of, of discerning calling and what does the Lord have for me? And I don't think that's super mystical. I think you find that in his word. I think you find that in, you know, abiding in Christ and knowing um, through faithful living daily what that looks like. Mm. Um, and I think that's why, you know, my, my personal story, I think, you know, I always tell people, um, one of my mentors, um, Wen Kenyon, his picture thing on my shoulder, one of the things he gave me that was really a gift was as a young man who really struggled because my sin felt like it was going to be eternal. It was like, how do I get from under this shame and under this? And he just was really, really sweet and caring to say, like, that shame is not of God. Like, you have been delivered. And so we are working through the process of, of like, recovering that beauty, right? And so um, I think a lot of the voices that are shouting the things, you know, I, I go to a therapist, I get some great mental health um, tidbits, and I have anxiety disorder. And one of the things I've learned is my brain will lie to me constantly. <laughs> and so I've learned to stop and ask myself, when something feels like it's like compulsively being told to me in my head to question like, okay, like, is that truth? Is that something that's really like rooted in what God says I am, what God says I'm supposed to be doing? Um, and I think that trying to seek that voice and hear that voice, there is a path to faithfulness, even in this difficult stuff of relating to people who we have both our own situational, but even systematic and historical issues with. Gentlemen, thank you so much for everything today. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for the great examples that you've been just being good friends of mine. I appreciate your faithfulness there, putting up with me. Um, thank you for your time today. I know we've taken a lot of your time, um, but I think this is going to be really helpful and instructive for our audience as they're sort of processing these issues. So thank you for all of your work and labor in this area for so many years. Love doing with you guys. Thank you, Otis. Thank you for listening to this episode of Purpose That Prevails. If you've made it this far, I hope this means this conversation was thought-provoking and lights your path on this walk of faith we're all on together. A reminder, please spread the word about the show to your church community, your family, your friends. Every bit helps. If you would be so kind to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. It's been a pleasure for me to host the show and spend this time with you. My name is Otis Pickett. Until next time, God bless.
next chapter podcasts.